What's up, skeptics? I'm your host, Zoe McDaniel, and you're listening to Professional Skepticism. You're tuned in to the 25th episode of Professional Skepticism. I'm so happy to have made it this far. This is such a milestone for us. I didn't plan anything really in particular for today's episode, but today's topic is kind of insane. So I think we're just going to dive right into it. Today's episode is what I'm calling the DuPont dump, though there are plural dumps, if you will. So let's talk about it. So I'd like to start first with the history like I always do. DuPont is short for E.I. DuPont de Nemours and Company, and DuPont was established in 1802 as a gunpowder mill. In the 20th century, DuPont developed many polymers, Freon, so the stuff that's in like refrigerators. I think we might put that in our cars too, if I'm correct, for like the AC, I might be wrong synthetic pigments, and paints. So pretty much DuPont is responsible for a lot of the common household and industrial products that we are acquainted with today. In 2013, the company ranked 86th in the Fortune 500 with nearly $36 billion in revenues and $4.85 billion in profits. In 2017, Dow and DuPont merged with one company, ranking 35 on the Fortune 500. The merger was worth $130 billion, and this merger formed the world's largest chemical company in terms of sales. DuPont is headquartered in Wilmington, Delaware. So all of that is from Wikipedia. So that's a little bit of quick background information on DuPont. Let's get into what DuPont is doing or has been doing. So one of the main sources that I used for this episode is The Devil We Know, which is a documentary about DuPont that came out in either 2018 or 2019. I want to say 2019 sounds correct, but I'll put it all in the show notes like I do. I also referenced NBC News, um, a lot of EPA journals, the Environmental Working Group, and a couple of other websites as well. But a lot of this came from that documentary which I recommend watching. So according to Wikipedia, 3M, which is a very popular company we probably are all familiar with, they were originally known as the Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing Company. They began producing PFOA, which is a chemical, by electrochemical fluorination in 1947. Starting in 1951, DuPont purchased PFOA from 3M for use in the manufacturing of Teflon, which you might be familiar with as well. DuPont internally referred to PFOA as C8, like the letter C and the number 8. So I might be using PFOA and C8 interchangeably. There's also a sister chemical, which I'll introduce, that's PFOS. All of these chemicals are of the same chemical class. They're basically the same thing. So when I was researching this, I really wanted to know the names of the scientists who created the PFAS chemicals, which is the category of chemicals that they are. 
because like I just wanted I wanted a name and a face to be mad at. All I could find was that 3M is responsible for the creation of these chemicals. And that's what's so annoying to me about corporations. It's so easy for people to hide behind a corporation that they work for. And we don't know like who to blame other than the corporation. So after purchasing PFOA from 3M, they used it to create the polymer known as Teflon, which is the finish that's on, it's coated on like nonstick cooking pans. So it's what makes pans nonstick. And so whenever I say Teflon in this episode, I'm referring to Teflon pans. And you guys might have Teflon pans or your moms or your grandmas or whoever in your life might have Teflon pans. They probably do. You might hear Ziggy in the background of this episode because recently when I've been recording, he's being very needy and wanting to be with me. So yeah, lay down, Bubba. So when Teflons first went on the market, there were advertisements everywhere. Everyone was freaking out. They were like, no way. We can have these pans and all of our food doesn't stick to them and it doesn't burn and we can just peel things off super easy. It's super easy to clean. And you would hear this phrase, look for the Teflon quality seal. And so that was just kind of like brainwashed into people. Everyone had a Teflon. So these chemicals, perfluorooctanoic acid, or PFOA, and its sister chemical, perfluorooctane sulfonate, or PFOS, are man-made chemicals categorized as perfluoroalkyl and polyfluoroalkyl substances, or PFAS. So PFAS are called forever chemicals because they have extremely long half-lives and they do not break down in the body or the environment. So when you die, these chemicals will be in your body, no matter when they got into your system. So this means that they're bio-persistent. They do not break down in the body, in nature, and that's what's so scary about them. According to Wikipedia, PFOA and PFOS are extremely biopersistent in the environment and resistant to typical environmental degradation processes. They are widely distributed across the higher trophic levels and are found in soil, air, and groundwater at sites across the United States. According to NBC News, the chemicals have been associated with high cholesterol, increased liver enzymes, decreased vaccination response, birth defects, pregnancy-induced hypertension, and testicular and kidney cancer, according to a 2016 EPA study. PFOA is in the blood of 99% of all Americans. According to the New York Times, where scientists have tested for the presence of PFOA in the world, they have found it. PFOA is in the blood or vital organs of Atlantic salmon, swordfish, striped mullet, gray seals, Alaskan polar bears, brown pelicans, sea turtles, sea eagles, Midwestern bald eagles, California sea lions, and Laysan albatrosses on Sand Island, a wild refuge on Midway Atoll, Atoll in the middle of the North Pacific Ocean, about halfway between North America and Asia. Almost every mammal, including humans, birds, fish, whatever, have PFOA or PFOS in their bloodstreams. And according to NBC News, a 2019 study by the Social Science Environmental Health Research Institute at Northeastern University and the Environmental Working Group, a nonprofit focused on the environment, identified at least 610 locations in 43 states that are known to be contaminated by PFAS, including drinking water systems, serving an estimated 19 million people. 
So all of that is really scary. And you might be wondering, how did this happen? I'm going to introduce you to the history of the chemicals first. So 3M created PFOA first and foremost. Then DuPont bought it from them in 1951, like I mentioned. And 3M and DuPont popularized PFOA and PFOS through the Teflon technology. And eventually the chemicals were being sold and manufactured in Europe and Asia, literally all across the world. Once it was seen how effective the Teflon pans were at preventing stains and sticking, companies started using PFAS in carpeting, upholstery, fabric protectors, work clothes and active apparel, glosses, cosmetics, floor wax, textiles, firefighting foam, sealants, airplanes, cars, implantable medical devices, paper products like sandwich wraps that would prevent grease, lunch bags, popcorn bags, and so many other consumer and industrial products. They even used Teflon to rust-proof the inside of the Statue of Liberty. So it's everywhere. 3M and DuPont were incredibly successful in the PFAS business. 3M provided DuPont with specific instructions on how to dispose of these chemicals properly. DuPont was supposed to either incinerate these chemicals or dispose of them at chemical waste facilities. DuPont's own internal instructions said that it was not to be flushed into waters or sewers. So remember this, we're going to come back to this. I'm sure you can tell where it's going. Both 3M and DuPont were researching the health effects of PFOA dating back to as early as the 1950s and 60s. So pretty much as soon as they started producing it, they were like researching it to see how it would affect humans and the environment. So from the get-go, very early in the production of Teflon, a DuPont PFOA manufacturer in the Midwest reported that they were heating up the Teflon and they heard a pounding noise on the roof that sounded like a hailstorm. And they're like, what is that? So they go outside and they see that it was actually a flock of birds that had flown over the vent where the Teflon, I guess like the gas, the waste that was coming off of the process would go out of those vents. A flock of birds flew over that and immediately died. Like they inhaled it and just fell to the roof of the factory. So obviously that's not good. And from like, this was very early on in the production of it. And they kept that very hush hush. And they were like, all right, cool. Just keep producing it. Some of the earliest research performed on PFOA and its effects on humans and animals was performed by 3M themselves. And the results indicated serious birth defects in rats that had been exposed to the chemicals. These results are obviously concerning. So in the late 1970s, which is like, I mean, they've already been producing this for like 20 years. They already know how bad this is. 3M and DuPont decided to check the PFOA contamination level of their workers' blood and compare it to archived clean blood supplies of regular people who did not work around these chemicals. So they're trying to get this clean blood, and it turns out that there is no clean blood anywhere. So every blood type that they could get their hands on from any demographic, children, adults, literally all over the world, all the continents, they all had PFAO in it. Eventually, they did find clean blood that had been taken from army recruits. This blood was drawn and archived at the start of the Korean War in 1950. So remember, PFOA was manufactured first in 1947, and then DuPont bought it in 1951, and then it was being pretty much mass-produced and shipped all over the world. So in 1950, luckily, 
this blood was taken and saved. And that was like the only clean blood they were able to get their hands on. So basically what this means is that pretty much immediately after the chemicals grew in popularity, everyone had it in their system. Today, every baby in the developed world is born with PFAS in their blood. So at this point, DuPont and 3M have learned that not only do their workers have high levels of PFOA in their bloodstream, but the rest of the world has at least some amount of PFOA in their bloodstreams as well. Knowing the results of 3M's study showed these rats had serious birth defects and health issues, as well as being aware that their workers had high amounts of PFOA in their systems, DuPont still said that the 3M study showed no risk to the women workers in their facilities, or any workers for that matter. Supposedly, the only risk was to the fetus of pregnant women. So like the women are fine, the men are fine, the non-binaries, the whoevers are fine, but the babies in the uteruses, they're not so fine is what DuPont was trying to say. So with that, let's talk about Sue Bailey and Bucky Bailey. So Sue worked for DuPont in Parkersburg, West Virginia, in their Teflon division when she was pregnant with her son, Bucky. She worked directly with C8, PFOA, whatever you want to call it, like as directly as you possibly could be to this chemical. At this time, no one told the workers that these chemicals were unsafe. Everything was just like very hush-hush internally. So after the Teflon was manufactured, PFOA-contaminated wastewater would be created as like a byproduct of the manufacturing process, and Sue's job was basically to sit in the room where the Teflon was created and funnel all of the wastewater out into the river. So remember, 3M actually told DuPont that under no circumstances should they release this into the waterways. It was specified in their documents But DuPont, at this point, had dumped so much C8 into the water, they had lost track of how much they had dumped. And I'm not saying that, like, 3M is some angel over here, because certainly they played their part in this mess. I mean, they manufactured this and created it. But they did provide waste instructions to DuPont. And I wonder if DuPont had just followed those rules, if we would still be in as bad of shape as we are. I think it would still be in our systems. Because in the documentary, there were these old news clips of people asking if it was really safe to cook on Teflon pans because of the chemicals. It was like some news clippings and stuff. And like now we know that it isn't because you're just like heating up this chemical and breathing it in. But anyways, so Bucky was born in 1981 with half of a nose, one nostril, a serrated eyelid, and a keyhole pupil, which means that his iris and retina were not connected. And this was basically the exact same findings that 3M had seen in the rats that had been exposed to PFOA. So he pretty much had all of the same birth defects. Sue thought something was strange about this, so she brought it up to her supervisors at DuPont. And Sue says that they blamed her and said that she was the reason that her baby was born with birth defects and that it had nothing to do with the work environment. But she was still suspicious, obviously, of what they had exposed her to. Then talk spread around the factory because another girl that worked there, specifically in the Teflon area, had a baby with deformities just like Bucky. Of seven births in their division, two had serious birth defects mimicking the 3M rat studies. Then, suddenly, DuPont removed women from the Teflon division. And Sue immediately knew that when they removed the women, something was wrong. Bucky had around 30 surgeries from when he was two months old to five years old. He said in the documentary he had one surgery where they, like, inserted a balloon under his skin on his skull, and then they would, like over time pump air into it so he had this like big basically like a big bubble on his forehead and the reason they did this was so that like the skin would grow 
And then they used part of that skin to recreate the other side of his nose that he didn't have. And he said it was like a migraine times 10. But there's like pictures of him and he he was such a trooper. Like he seems like his parents really loved him and they just wanted him to feel normal. So they didn't really let him beat himself up over it. What was really sad about this situation was that Sue unfortunately couldn't quit because she needed the insurance that DuPont provided to care for Bucky's birth defects and like help him through all of his health problems. And then later on, she discovered that she had thyroid disease. DuPont was Sue's livelihood just as much as it was for other people in Parkersburg and the surrounding cities. And that's what's so twisted about all of this. DuPont built factories in like these small towns and created jobs for everyone like donated to their schools, provided them with insurance, the whole nine yards, like everything that you would want and need out of a job. And these people loved DuPont for that. They trusted DuPont. They were like, thank you for bringing these jobs here. They owed their livelihoods to DuPont at this point. So it's really kind of sad. Another DuPont employee, Ken Wamsley, he also worked at the Parkersburg, West Virginia factory around the same time as Sue. And Ken said that he also loved DuPont growing up. He cut the grass for DuPonters who lived in the neighborhood. He'd go into local restaurants and everyone dining there worked for DuPont. It was just a way of life. Ken started working for DuPont in 1962 and worked there for 40 years in the Teflon lab. He was a dedicated employee and he was always eager to be put on new projects. When he was told by a new supervisor that they thought Teflon might be hurting pregnant women and they sent all the women home, he was immediately suspicious. He asked his supervisor whether it had any impact on men, but apparently men were fine, supposedly. Ken developed colon cancer and had to have his colon removed. He was told that he only had two months to live, and he said that it was really, really terrible. Obviously, we all know what it's like to love someone or be around someone or to even have cancer. He had a really bad go at it, but he did put up a fight and he made it to remission. And he was in the documentary. It was really cool to hear from him. And he's definitely anti-DuPont and I don't blame him. He lists off a huge list of coworkers. I mean, there's probably like 20 or 30 people that he says they all developed cancer or some other serious terminal disease and they died at young ages. Like these people were dying in like their 30s and 40s. There had to be like, I mean at least 20 to 30 names. It was really heartbreaking. All of the coworkers he listed had been exposed to C8 chemicals at DuPont. They all either worked in the same lab as him or around it or in another lab that also used C8 or PFOA. When shit hit the fan, which, shocker, it hits the fan, I'm going to talk to you about all the court cases and stuff, he wanted to testify against DuPont. And at the time, he was really sick with cancer Um, and he was really frail and not doing well, but he testified anyways because he didn't think he'd have much time left, and he was like, I'm one of the, like, last people from Cosmo. (laughs) But yes, Ken was one of the last people from that group of people who were, like, initially working with PFOA super um, unprotected, and he was like, I have to testify on behalf of my friends and anyone else who is exposed to these chemicals. Man, these animals do not want me to record in peace. So Glenn Evers started at DuPont in 1981 as a chemist in new product development, and he affirms basically everything that has been discussed so far. The secrets that DuPont kept, the reality of the work environment, the severity of the chemicals, the whole shebang. He says that DuPont is really good at PR. They start doing more things for the town when things aren't going their way so they can win over trust and reliance. 
and they make people think that DuPont can do no wrong. And that's what they thought. So I just wanted to give you like a little testimony of some of the workers that work there and even like the ones that, you know, Glenn seems to be doing fine. So the stories of Sue and Ken, along with all of these internal 3M and DuPont research studies and documents, are evidence enough to show that 3M and DuPont knew about the health risks of PFOA the whole time they used it, basically. And when asked about it, DuPont kept saying things like, well, risk is relative, blah, blah, blah. We know now that DuPont was aware in 1984 that the chemicals were in the Ohio River Valley, in the air, everywhere, and they weren't telling the community about it. Like, there were straight-up white particles flying around in the air, in the plant, around the town. It was crazy. DuPont wanted to try and figure out just how much C8 had been dumped, so they sent people out with jugs to gas stations and other stores in neighboring towns to collect water, and they found that the chemical had gone very far at this point, and the water was very contaminated. So enter Wilbert Tennant, which is one of the most famous people associated with the DuPont dumps, if you will. Wilbert was a farmer in West Virginia with about 600 acres of land split between him and his siblings. The land was left to him and his siblings after their parents had passed away. In the early 1980s, his brother Jim sold his portion of the land, which was about 66 acres, to DuPont. It was connected to the rest of the farmland that was still in the tenant family. And Jim, he didn't really want to sell his land, but he was very sick with ailments at the time, and they weren't able to diagnose them and properly treat them, and he really needed the money, and so that's why he sold his land. But doesn't that sound a little suspicious? Like, he, they weren't sure what was going on with him. They weren't able to diagnose him. I'm hypothesizing that he was already sick from PFOA because he was literally, like, in the town where they were dumping this shit already, even before DuPont bought this land. So DuPont told the family that they were going to use this land that they had purchased for non-hazardous waste disposal, but Wilbert immediately noticed changes in the water quality on his land, which was downstream from the newly purchased DuPont land. There was a foamy, thick layer on top of this newly discolored water. Fish and animals began to die all along the river, and Wilbert would find dead deer by the water all the time, so they'd just be, like, drinking the water and keel over and die, basically. Wilbert reached out to veterinarians in his area, local government officials, anyone that he thought would be able to help him with his problem, and no one wanted to get involved. So in 1997, he decided to record the state of his land and the animals on it as evidence. Wilbert's cows started acting deranged and aggressive. He said they were always super passive, super like loving and cuddly with the family. But now when they would go to check on them, they would be very aggressive and like almost act as if they didn't recognize them. His cows had these chemically blue, glossy looking eyes, black and brown teeth that were literally like rotting out of their heads, nosebleeds, patches of hair missing, large bumps on their bodies, lesions, malformed hooves, receded eyes. They had diarrhea, they were slobbering, and all of the young animals were born sick. So it's like, oh yeah, we have a new calf. It would come out looking like this, looking crazy. Within just a couple of years of the purchase from DuPont, or by DuPont, I guess, Wilbert's entire herd of cows had died. They had over 200 cows roaming on this land. Like that is... So sad. So Tennant called 
Rob Billet to help. And Rob Billet is an angel. So Rob Billet is a corporate defense lawyer. He works for Taft, Stettness, and Hollister Law Firm, which we're just going to call it Taft for short. Rob is very smart. He values critical thinking. He doesn't believe everything that he reads, which, hell yeah, Um, which is just common sense, you know, but he lives by that. He came up from a modest background, and he held progressive views. And according to the New York Times at Taft, Rob had asked to join Thomas Terp's environmental team. So I was reading about him, and when he was in school, he said one of his favorite courses was environmental law. So when he joined Taft, he was like, oh, there's an environmental team. I want to be a part of that. Ten years earlier, Congress passed the legislation known as Superfund, which financed the emergency cleanup of hazardous waste dumps. Superfund was a lucrative development for firms like Taft, creating an entire subfield within environmental law, one that required a deep understanding of the new regulations in order to guide negotiations among municipal agencies and numerous private parties. Terp's team at Taft, oh, that was a tongue twister. Terp's team at Taft was a leader in the field. So that was from New York Times. It's kind of funny that he took on this case because his specialty was to defend chemical companies. He was a corporate defense lawyer. He'd even worked on some of the same cases on the same side as DuPont lawyers before. But Billet actually had a grandma who lived near Parkersburg and West Virginia, so he had a ton of childhood memories in that area. And that was why he felt compelled to take the case. People who lived there still knew him, and I think people had actually pointed tenant to him, and so that was why he ended up calling him. Rob figured that if someone from that town was reaching out with real concerns, then there was something worth looking into. So Tennant reached out to Rob directly and told them that he thought this was all DuPont's fault. Rob and his boss, Terp, watched the videos Wilbert made and immediately agreed that something was not right. I mean, I just described to you what the cows looked like. That's what he's showing them on the videos. Rob filed a federal suit against DuPont in the summer of 1999. Ziggy just cuddled up in the corner of my studio on like a blanket and a pillow, and he just looks so cute. So DuPont and the EPA each hired three vets to do an analysis on Wilbert's farm. All of the vets came back and said that DuPont was not at fault and that it was tenants' poor capabilities of taking care of the animals that he had for years, which just makes me so upset. Like, he, this was their family farm. They had over 200 cows. And they're like, oh, you just aren't taking good care of them. They're, like, getting sick. They're probably, like, you know, there's probably poop next to their food and whatever. Like, you know, whatever. Just not taking care of your animals, not being sanitary. That was basically what they were saying was the issue, was that Wilbert Tennant didn't know how to take care of cows on his cow farm. And it's like, oh, suddenly I forgot how to take care of my cows right as soon as DuPont buys this land and starts dumping shit on it. Okay. It just makes me so mad. Like, they paid these people off, obviously. In May of 2000, 3M decided to replace the chemistry of Scotchgard fabric protector, and this was, like, a big thing. I think people still buy it. I think it's still a thing on the market, but they changed the chemistry of it. But basically, Scotchgard fabric protector is, like, in a spray can, and you, like, spray it on your couch and it puts like a coating on it so that if you spill like a juice on it, it's not going to stain. But 3M decided they're going to replace the chemistry of Scotchgard fabric protector and remove PFOA from the formula. And this was going to cost them hundreds of millions of dollars. So this was like a big announcement, a big shock to everybody. 3M decides to show the EPA some of their alarming studies about PFOA. 
According to the New York Times, the EPA was particularly alarmed to learn that PFOA had been detected in American blood banks, something 3M and DuPont had known since 1976. By 2003, the average concentration of PFOA in the blood of an adult American was four to five parts per billion. So I just like jumped ahead a little bit there with the 2003 stat, but like what the fuck? 3M and the EPA created an agreement where basically the EPA was like, you have to do this, where 3M would voluntarily take the PFAS chemicals off the market, and they pledged to phase this out by the end of 2002. DuPont, who was not in this agreement, still in need of PFOA for their own operations, decided to expand, and they opened a facility in Fayetteville, North Carolina, to manufacture their own PFOA. So that's just like down the road from me. Love that. So this was when Rob Billet discovered the connection between 3M and the DuPont dump and the tenant's water. So he's like seeing this in the news. He's a corporate defense lawyer for chemical companies. So this is like definitely something he would have his eyes on. And he's like, oh my God, 3M sells that to DuPont, yada, 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 connect the dots. That's probably what is in the tenant's farm. No one had actually heard of PFOA yet, like not by name, We knew of Teflon and stuff like that. We knew all these cool products are coming on the market. You know, like, we have cool workers' clothes now that, like, if water spills on me, I don't get wet and whatever. All these cool things coming out. But the science behind it wasn't common knowledge. We didn't know that PFOA was bad and, like, what it was. Taft was a law firm specializing in the chemical industry, and they had not even heard of PFOA yet. So according to the New York Times... Billet hunted through his files for other references to PFOA, which he learned was short for perfluoroctanoic acid. (laughs) But there was nothing. There was nothing in his notes. This wasn't anything they had seen before. He asked DuPont to share all documentation related to the substance, and of course DuPont refused. In the fall of 2000, Billet requested a court order to force them. Against DuPont's protests, the order was granted. Dozens of boxes containing thousands of unorganized documents began to arrive at Taft's headquarters. Private internal correspondence, medical and health reports, and confidential studies conducted by DuPont scientists were all included. There were more than 110,000 pages in all, some half a century old, because remember, these evil fucking people have known this forever. Billet spent the next few months on the floor of his office poring over the documents and arranging them in chronological order. Their own documents from the 60s proved that this was toxic. In 1984, DuPont had basically admitted that they had been liable for 32 years. By 1988, they started doing cancer studies. So all of this is like in their documentation. There was an increased rate of lytic cell tumors, and their studies showed that rats, dogs, and monkeys, which we always find when things are applicable to monkeys, it's applicable to us particularly, They were all dying after being exposed to the lowest dose of PFOA possible. The lowest dose. There were testicular tumors, liver disease, pancreatic disease. DuPont itself classified PFOA as a confirmed carcinogen, and the chemicals were so detrimental that they nicknamed them the devil's piss. It was discovered that by 1990, DuPont had dumped 7,100 tons of PFOA into digestion ponds, which are these, like, open, unlined pits, basically just, like, pits in the ground that allowed the chemicals to seep straight into the ground. And this ran into the tenant's land and the water supply in Parkersburg, Vienna, Little Hawking, and Lubeck. 
they had all been contaminated. So the water for over 100,000 people in this area is contaminated with C8, PFOA, whatever the fuck, and they're just drinking it for years, and no one tells them. Showering in it, cooking with it, everything with it. like, And it's just in the land and in the air. They had record of the waste that they dumped into the tenant's land, and they still did not disclose this information. So, like, at some point, like, remember I mentioned in the beginning, they were like, we don't really know how much we're dumping. At some point, they're like, okay, maybe we should track it. So they have it, like, tracked. All of this evidence should have been disclosed under federal law. Like, this information did not show up until the tenant court case after Rob Billet, our sweet angel, went through all those documents. The New York Times reports that DuPont claimed that it did volunteer health information about PFOA to the EPA during those decades, and when asked for evidence, it forwarded two letters written to West Virginian government agencies from 1982 and 1992, both of which cited internal studies that called into question links between PFOA exposure and human health problems. So I thought I would just include that, like, not trying to just completely harp on them, but I am trying to harp on them because what the fuck. But they are saying that they did, like, tell someone um, according to the New York Times, again, under the 1976 Toxic Substances Control Act, the EPA can test chemicals only when it has been provided evidence of harm. This arrangement, which largely allows chemical companies to regulate themselves, is the reason that the EPA has restricted only five chemicals out of tens of thousands on the market in the last 40 years. I think this number is a little higher now um, on the five chemicals, I think. I think we do have some regulations on the PFAS now because I think this was a 2019 article. But still, I mean, if I was a chemical company and it's like my number one chemical that is selling me so much stuff, like I'm making so much money off of using this chemical and the EPA will only regulate it if they can see like information proving that it's harmful to people, I would not send them that information if I had it. I probably wouldn't even test it to find that out. I mean, me personally, I would not be in this situation. But I'm saying like if I was a greedy chemical corporate person and that was my lifestyle, I would not be telling the EPA. So that's why they only have five chemicals regulated, which is just crazy. So what do we think about this? Like I feel like at these times and still today, there were so many unregulated chemicals. Like I'm sure they didn't think anything of it until people started to notice the correlation between DuPont and their illnesses. Like, I I mean, we'll get into it with the EPA. They do act a little sus in this um, situation. But, like, I'm like, did they really send this in? Like, did the EPA really get that? I don't know. So either way, this is all coming to light. And in 2001, DuPont settled with the tenants for an undisclosed amount. Unfortunately, Mr. Tennant was diagnosed with cancer before suffering a fatal heart attack in 2009 at the sad young age of 67, and his wife died of cancer two years later. So, to summarize, <laughs> a lot has happened. Basically, what we know is that DuPont and 3M knew for a very long time that PFOA was not safe. Around 2000, 3M came forward and was like, we're going to change our formulas and get rid of PFOAs, and we're going to phase this out by 2002. DuPont was like, cool, we still want to use it. They create the factory in Fayetteville, and they keep producing this. And the tenant case is going on all the while. Rob Billet swoops in, gets all the documentation, puts it out there for the world to see, and gets this case taken care of. But, like, at this point, no one is telling DuPont to stop making this chemical. 
So Rob is like, I'm going to tell them to stop. And he's not over it. He's not over DuPont. He was like, yeah, the tenant case is settled, whatever. But I have more work to do. So it was discovered that DuPont around this time, in like 2001, and through all of this research he's been doing through all this documentation, it's discovered that DuPont was dumping 50,000 pounds of C8 into the Ohio River annually. So this is when, I guess, DuPont decided they were going to keep track of it. So the Ohio River Valley covers a lot of areas up in West Virginia. So now I'm going to introduce you to Joe and Darlene Krieger. So Joe and Darlene are residents of Parkersburg, West Virginia, and Joe is a school teacher or was a school teacher. I don't know if he still is. Around this time, they get letters in the mail with their water bills that say DuPont was notifying them of chemicals in the water. They're like, hey, um, there's PFOA in your water, but like to our standards, it's safe. So that's what they said in the letter. They're like, it's okay. You don't have to worry. And we now know that any level of PFOA is unsafe. But particularly the amounts that were in the water in Parkersburg, it was incredibly unsafe, even though DuPont said it was safe. So within a week, a friend of the Kriegers said that her granddaughter's teeth were turning black and their neighbor's dog started to get these tumors and bumps on him. People were getting sick around town, but it wasn't just like the cold or the flu. It was like something more intense, but nobody really knew what was going on. And two young men actually got testicular cancer. And, like, these are all common things, I guess. But, like, in these, like, small towns, like, for all of this to be going on, it's very, very suspicious. It seems it's too much at once, especially for two men to just randomly get testicular cancer. Like, what? So it turns out that the purpose of this chemical notification letter that they all received, though it was not specifically stated, the purpose was to give residents time to reach out for a class action lawsuit. Which to me is suspicious because it's like, how are they supposed to know that that's why you guys sent that letter? If like, if it's like, if it's safe, if we're supposed to trust you and it really is safe, why would people sue about it? According to West Virginia law, two years after the letter went out, the statute of limitations would have ended for people to be able to take action. If there was no response, then the case was legally dead. So this was very, very suspicious. So Joe, at first, was, like, not thinking anything of it. Joe and Darlene are like, okay, like, I guess that's fine. But then they started hearing all those things about their neighbors and, like, seeing all these things around town, and they're like, no, something's off here. So Joe called pretty much anyone that he thought would be able to help him. He called the water company, the local government, DuPont themselves. He called them directly, and he said that they basically just fed him, like, a load of bullshit. He even called the EPA, and that was when he finally got a little bit of direction. So he wanted, he just wanted to know more about whatever C8 was. He was like, if it's safe, whatever, but like, what is this? And finally, someone from the EPA pointed him towards the tenant case. So Joe took a look at the tenant case and he saw similarities between the symptoms of the tenant's cows and the symptoms of the people in his neighborhood. And he was like, what the fuck? Apparently the EPA guy was like, what is that doing in your water system? That would have sent chills down my spine. I would have freaked the fuck out. And then seeing, like, this court case where this DuPont is, like, pumping this shit into this guy's, oh, my God, I would have freaked out. I'd have been like, holy shit. So in 2001, Joe and Darlene become the main defendants in a class action lawsuit against DuPont defended by our lovely angel Rob Billet. There were six different water districts that were captured in this lawsuit. 
So Rob sent a huge letter against DuPont out to all the regulatory agencies, and DuPont, of course, requested a gag order on Rob, but it was denied. So Rob sent everything he had to the EPA. He was like, fuck this. An email from DuPont's lawyers, which came out during like the trial, said that Billet gave 130 of their worst documents to the EPA. Like, yikes. Also, the documentary was interesting because they made the lawyer, like, read some of his own emails that he had sent to, like, his family members or, like, other people. And he was like, this Wilbert Tennant guy is a con man, and this guy's just trying to get money out of us, and what the fuck? I hate this guy. Like, so unprofessional. It was ridiculous. Originally, DuPont said that if your drinking water is showing one part per billion of C8, then don't drink the water. That comes out to about a drop of C8 in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Just like a little drop. But there was so much C8 in the water, like so much more than a part per billion in the Ohio River Valley. Some areas had more than three to seven times that amount. According to the New York Times, when DuPont learned that Billet was preparing a new lawsuit against them, it announced that it was going to reevaluate that figure. Shocker. As in the Tennant case, DuPont formed a team composed of its own scientists and scientists from the West Virginia Department of Environmental Protection. It announced a new threshold, 150 parts per billion. So that is so big. That's a huge difference from one part to 150 parts per billion. Billet found the figure mind-blowing. The toxicologist he hired had settled upon a safety limit of 0.2 parts per billion. So The people that he hired to look into it had said even less than in the original amount. So originally DuPont was like one part per billion. Then Rob's scientist said 0.2 parts per billion. And then the new DuPont number is 150 parts per billion. Like it's not adding up. But West Virginia endorsed the new standard. Within two years, three lawyers regularly used by DuPont were hired by the State Department of Environmental Protection in leadership positions. One of them was placed in charge of the entire agency. Billet said that the same DuPont lawyers tasked with writing the safety limit had become the government regulators responsible for enforcing that limit. So shit is getting very messy. Like I said, DuPont would go to these small towns, give everyone jobs, and everyone would rely on DuPont. So they had a lot of political power in these towns. So now they start getting people in office and like in these positions of power where they can actually you know, stand up against DuPont, but instead they're, like, kissing DuPont's ass because they don't want DuPont to move and take away all the jobs or whatever the fuck it is, but it's a mess. Basically, DuPont started working with their local branch of the EPA to get them on their side. They had Mike McCabe on their panel, which was, like, the number two guy in the EPA at one point. DuPont was requesting that the EPA help them determine the right things to say in their press releases. They're like, How should we word this so that we don't freak the public out, so that we're not technically lying, but we're also not giving them the full truth? DuPont asks the EPA also to say that their products were safe when they were not. So they're, like, trying to, like, bribe the EPA, basically. People trusted DuPont, and people trusted the EPA. So this shit is fucked up. This is actually, there's a word for this. It's called corporate capture. And I looked up the definition of this. So according to the Center for Constitutional Rights, Corporate capture is a phenomenon where private industry uses its political influence to take control of the decision-making apparatus of the state, such as regulatory agencies, law enforcement entities, and legislatures. As you can imagine, Parkersburg did not take this news very lightly, and not in the way that you would think. 
The tenants had just settled their court case, and now there's another case being filed against DuPont. It's a fine line between fucking with people's livelihoods and helping them. And these people don't really see that. Like the ones that are just like living their lives are like, I'm fine. Nothing's wrong. Why are you um, suing DuPont? That's like the company that I work for. And like, I have loyalty to them. They take care of us. Why would you be suing them? And this was like, even worse, like people were so upset with Joe Kiger because everyone in this town, oh no, have I been saying Kiger and Kiger? It's Kiger. I think I said Kiger earlier. It's Kiger. Actually, let me double check. It's Joe Kiger. Sorry about that. But yeah, so Joe's just like a school teacher. He's not working for DuPont or anything. So all these people are like super pissed off. The whole town is pissed off at Joe. So according to the New York Times, Darlene Kiger's first husband had been a chemist in DuPont's PFOA lab, and she didn't want his name out there because she didn't want all the DuPonters to be upset at her. But DuPont paid for his education, it secured him a mortgage, and it paid him a generous salary. DuPont even gave him a free supply of PFOA, what the fuck, which Darlene used as soap in the family's dishwasher and to clean the car. Sometimes her husband came home from work sick with fever, nausea, diarrhea, vomiting, after working in one of the PFOA storage tanks. It was a common occurrence at Washington Works, which was the name of the the plant in Parkersburg. Darlene says that the men at the plant called it Teflon flu. Like, that's so fucked. In 1976, after Darlene gave birth to their second child, her husband told her that he was not allowed to bring his work clothes home anymore. DuPont had told them that They had found out that PFOA was causing health problems for women and birth defects in children. Six years later, at 36 years old, Darlene had to have an emergency hysterectomy. So it's just so sad. But that was like the background story of her. Then she went on to marry Joe. And in 2005, DuPont wanted to settle this class action lawsuit. It was like, okay, no more of this. Let's just nip this in the bud. DuPont agreed to settle for residents in the Ohio River Valley for $343 million. The plaintiffs refused to take individual payments because they're fucking badass, and they used the money and set up something called the C8 Science Panel. People really wanted to know if there were real links to human disease and people drinking C8. They were like, we don't give a shit. Like, you can give us money if you want, but, like, we need to get to the bottom of this. You can't just keep paying people off. Like, yes, we do want this money and we do deserve this money, but we need to fucking figure out what's going on. At this point, DuPont has spread C8 all over the planet. Like, it's literally everywhere. They're not the only ones even manufacturing this anymore. People are buying it from them in other fucking continents. It's everywhere. Literally everywhere. Under the settlement, anyone who participated in this study that was going to be conducted by the C8 science panel, which I didn't really tell you what that is. The C8 science panel, they put that together so that It was like all these super talented, smart scientists that were going to research whether there really was a link between disease and PFAS. So under this settlement, anyone who participated in the study waived their right to sue DuPont if C8 could not be linked to any disease, but if they did find a link, then people could sue DuPont. So these scientists were, or the the plaintiffs, the group of people that decided not to take the money. They paid people $400 to participate in the study. They just had to give blood and they had to share their medical records. So, you know, they could see like, oh, how much PFOA or PFOS or whatever the fuck is in your blood and what are your medical issues like? And then they were going to 
find a correlation. They advertised for this everywhere. There were like commercials for this. It was all over the place. Around 70,000 people participated in this study. It's the largest human health study done in the world, and the scientists designed the most world-class studies for this that have ever been done on pollutants. It took more than seven years for the research study to complete, and results came back around 2012. When the world ended. They determined that there was a link between drinking this chemical contaminated water and having kidney cancer, testicular cancer, ulcerative colitis, thyroid disease, preeclampsia, and high cholesterol. Over 3,500 people sued DuPont after the results with the help of Mike Papadonio's law firm, and DuPont settled with them for over $670 million. People are still suing today, though. The EPA fined DuPont for $16.5 million for failing to report the health risks to C8 exposure. To which I say, fuck that. That's it? They were selling over $25 billion in products each year, and they get fined $16.5 million? Like, I, I can't even put it into words. And then it just doesn't get better. It really doesn't get better. They supposedly participated in a gradual phase-out of C8 by 2015. And then they came up with a new chemical to replace C8 called Gen X to continue making Teflon. And I think I read somewhere that they actually had created this chemical forever ago, like in like the 70s or 80s. And they ended up deciding like not to switch over to it because it was just going to be really costly to change all their formulas and start manufacturing Gen X instead. So that's information to know and be upset about. But Gen X really isn't that much better. Like, the common theme that I've seen through researching this is, like, we will regulate or, like, outlaw a certain chemical, and then these companies will just come up with another chemical that's, like, basically the same thing, but they'll change, like, one small thing about it. So it still has the same effects, but it's not technically the outlawed chemical. So you you never really know if you're bringing in something that's just as bad or worse. A rat study of Gen X showed the same tumors as PFOA, So it's like literally the same thing, but supposedly Gen X has a shorter half-life than PFAS or PFAO, PF, whatever the fuck, PFOA, and requires higher doses to have the same effects. And it's supposedly not quite as resistant to breaking down in the environment, but it still is pretty resistant and it still has the same effects. Like just maybe you need a little bit more. So it's still bad. We don't yet have the science on lifelong, long-term effects of PFAS or Gen X, but we do know that it impacts the nervous system and the way that we metabolize things. So scientists are just now catching up with trying to learn how this affects our bodies. Gen X is one of 88,000 unregulated chemicals being used in everyday products. Another forever chemical that is just now starting to be cleaned up is called PCB, which you might have heard of. So according to the Environmental Working Group, PCBs were manufactured by Monsanto beginning in 1929 and are linked to various health harms, including cancer, reproductive harms, and immune effects. They were widely used for a myriad of industrial purposes until they were banned as a class by Congress in 1976. In 2020, Bayer, which acquired Monsanto in 2018, agreed to pay $650 million to 2,500 cities, counties, and ports to clean up PCB contamination. 
And there may be still more contamination. A 2015 study found that PCBs could be leaching from building materials in nearly 26,000 schools. So, like, they stopped that in 1976, and we're just now, like, learning that it's still in, like, all these materials that were used to build schools and, like, probably hospitals and orphanages and everything that was, like, helpful to the universe. We're just breathing this shit in. So that's just an example of another forever chemical that is pretty much, like, the same thing as a PFAS chemical. So I wanted to touch a little bit on the North Carolina situation because that's where I am. So the Cape Fear River in North Carolina is contaminated with PFOA and Gen X. According to NC Policy Watch, DuPont began an employee blood monitoring program the same year that they opened the Fayetteville plant that they opened in 2002, and that was when they started manufacturing PFOA. In 2006, OSHA did an inspection, and they looked at all of this information about the blood monitoring program, and they noted that employees had higher than normal levels of PFOA in their systems and the numbers were increasing quickly. OSHA inspectors also found a break room table, a restroom door, and a protective suit, all of which were supposedly decontaminated. They had also been contaminated with PFOA. Like, they were supposed to be, like, clean surfaces. They had PFOA on it. At the time, though, there were no regulations about exposure in the workplace. OSHA could only provide information on how to prevent exposure. So remember, DuPont is supposed to have ended manufacturing and use of PFAs in 2015. In 2016, Fort Bragg, home of the U.S. Army's 82nd Airborne Division in Fayetteville, reported five types of PFAS in drinking water. So this is from the Policy Watch as well. The total concentration was 62.14 parts per trillion. State health and environmental officials have recommended that people not drinking water with total PFAS concentrations at 70 parts per trillion or above, or any at 10 parts per trillion for any individual compound. Wow, I was struggling there. Based on the number of PFAS and their total concentration, at least one of the compounds at Fort Bragg must have exceeded the 10 parts per trillion threshold. And this is also from NC Policy Watch. In 2018, a Department of Health and Human Services study of 30 residents living near the Fayetteville plant showed blood levels of PFOA as high as 34.6 parts per billion. In the general U.S. population, it's 14 parts per billion. So first of all, we got a lot of it in us anyways. But these people that are just living around the area have like twice as much. PFOAs are still being used in some materials today, even though it's widely prohibited for most uses. There's still PFAS in some firefighting foam and MRE, which are meals ready to eat packaging. Like that's what like military people, (laughs) I sound so like foreign to it because it is foreign to me, but that's what like people in the military will eat, those like prepackaged foods. So there's PFOAs in that. There were North Carolina bills proposed to prohibit the use and manufacturing of these products, but it did not pass in the Senate. So I guess we'll just keep making those things, I guess. After all of this went down, all of these court cases, DuPont was like, all right, it's time for a spinoff. So in an attempt to shift the liability associated with PFAS, DuPont has entered into various transactions with other smaller companies. And this removes the liability from DuPont and makes these smaller companies responsible for any payments or corrective actions that arise from lawsuits. These smaller companies are often unable to make the payouts to defendants or take the corrective actions because they don't have the capital or resources. So if these smaller companies are run into the ground, it's okay because DuPont, one, 
is large and likely gave them like a decent deal to work with them or like notoriety brought them business. And two, DuPont is now no longer the name being spoken about in the news if something arises from a lawsuit. So like if I am DuPont and I give this other company my like responsibilities for this, like their name is going to be the one that's in the news, not mine. So DuPont essentially gets to wash their hands of it. Companies don't have enough capital to pay the victims for what they've been through. And then taxpayers end up having to pay for like the environmental cleanup. So it's just this fucked up cycle. In 2015, DuPont made an arrangement with the Kimors company to take on a majority of their biggest liabilities. The Kimors company became the new chemical business for DuPont. Kimors manufactures Gen X and is now one of the largest producers of fluorochemicals in the world. According to NBC News, DuPont spokesman Turner denied that the Kimors spinoff was an attempt to evade environmental and legal liabilities associated with PFAS. The reason for the spinoff, Turner said, was that DuPont was seeking to transform itself into a higher growth, higher value company, and we saw growth opportunities in its other businesses. So according to Wikipedia, a corporate spinoff, also known as a spin-out, or Starburst, or Hive Off. Like, what the fuck? I hate corporate buzzwords. I hate corporate lingo so much. But a spinoff is a type of corporate action where a company splits off a section as a separate business or creates a second incarnation, even if the first is still active. So I worked for a large corporation, and Within one large organization, there are multiple businesses. So you might have what they call like a finance, like, okay, if you're in the finance department, they might call that a business. So there's a finance business. There might be an internal audit business, an operations business, a manufacturing business, and so on and so forth. So basically all the functions that keep a company working are operating as their own business. And they're typically all responsible for some form of revenue. They have their own expenses, their own budgets, etc. So they operate in their own best interest within the realms that an organization will allow them to. So you could have like your finance team is like doing fucking great, but like your communications team is doing terrible, but like they don't give a shit how the other one's operating. They just work, they just focus on themselves if the company's large enough, which DuPont is large enough. So my understanding is that a spinoff is a part of an organization that becomes independent of the parent, but is still owned by the parent. So it's like, instead of it just being like, I don't know, like the manufacturing part of the business is like like DuPont's manufacturing. It's doing so good. They're like, all right, you can just be your own manufacturing plant and we'll just own you. So now you become basically like a subsidiary. So for DuPont, they spun off their chemical part of the business into independent Kimors, the Kimors company. That's my understanding of this. I could be wrong. If you know more about this, let me know. Typically, in a spinoff situation, and this is from NBC News, the likelihood that shareholders end up taking on undervalued liabilities is higher because there isn't a third party doing in-depth analysis of the obligations and liabilities of the parent company. So I was like, that is super interesting. I would have never thought of that. In a spinoff, new owners of the company being spinned off typically rely on the parent company to be honest in their liabilities because at the end of the day, it's all the same company. In that example where if I was like talking about the manufacturing company, they technically are still a part of DuPont. So you would just think that like DuPont would set up the new company to be in a good position. So like if you're going to work for the new company, you're not thinking like, oh, I need to like triple check this and make sure that like everything makes perfect sense because at the end of the day, it's all the same company. If Kimors were a company that had no previous affiliation with DuPont, 
there would have been a stronger analysis performed on the liabilities they were undertaking. And this would likely have resulted in lower sale price, an insurance policy, or a right by the buyer to recover costs from DuPont. According to NBC News, the Kimors lawsuit alleges that DuPont pursued the spinoff so it could control the transaction structure and economics after concluding that no rational buyer would accept the liabilities associated with PFAS. However, DuPont spokesman Turner disputed this, saying that multiple firms submitted proposals to acquire Kimors before the spinoff, but they wouldn't provide details on these supposed companies that wanted to buy Kimors. So it's like, okay. But basically, Kimors is getting pissed off. They're like, um, you told us that we only had to pay this much in obligations, now we have to pay this much. So in on December 31st, 2019, Kimors' net worth was at $695 million, according to NBC News. Kimors is now responsible for tens of billions of dollars in PFAS obligations. For example, in 2015, during the initial transaction where Kimors became what it is, with regard to a North Carolina PFAS case, DuPont estimated that Kimors would have to pay $2.09 million if they lost, but it ended up being more than $200 million that they had to pay out. According to NBC News, Kimor's 2015 filings estimated its environmental remedial cleanup obligations, excluding human health problems, at $295 million, but citing, quote, considerable uncertainty regarding those costs. Kimor's filings said that, quote, adverse changes in circumstances could bring the total to just over $1 billion. That estimate turned out to be low. Two PFAS cases settled in 2017 and 2019, paid out roughly that amount. So Kim Wars is mad. <laughs> They're like, you set us up for failure and you don't have to worry about it because like, you're your own business and we're our own business. So they filed a complaint against DuPont. They were like, this isn't cool. We're going to sue you. So Kim Wars is like, this deal was fraudulent. DuPont knew and intentionally hid this information from us when it dumped all of this onto us. The New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection also agreed with that statement, and they said that DuPont's transfer of its chemical business was fraudulent and an attempt to, quote, insulate itself from billions of dollars of legacy pollution liabilities, meaning they don't want to have to pay for all of the environmental cleanup that they have caused essentially since 1950. DuPont argues that at the time the valuations were fair and that they couldn't be held responsible for things that happened in the years to come that would increase the price that they would have to pay out. Like, dude, you knew these chemicals were toxic since like 1950, 1960. I think you could make an assumption that these companies are going to have to pay a fuck ton of money. DuPont claims that the company's CEO was aware of the responsibility that was coming with the arrangement, but now Kimors basically has to act as like an insurance layer for DuPont. A lot of companies actually have subsidiary companies for this reason. They'll have like another entity that kind of like shoulders all the liability for them. Another spinoff company that DuPont created or made an arrangement with was in 2019 and it's called Corteva Inc. And they now hold all of DuPont's legacy operations and some PFAS liabilities. So apparently the legal liability spinoff method is becoming commonplace for chemical companies. Like a lot of companies are creating spinoffs so that if something down the road happens where the EPA is like, hey, um, you fucked up, you have to do this, this, and this, or like people start suing them, they'll have this other company there that kind of like takes the blame for them. Another transaction, which I mentioned at the beginning, occurred in 2017 and a new DuPont was created known as 
Dow DuPont, its businesses include electronics, transportation, and construction. Because of the two other spinoffs, New DuPont is two steps removed from PFAS obligations, according to NBC News. So Dow and DuPont merged into one, and I think they just still call it DuPont. But yeah, all these spinoffs allowed it to stay like two steps away, supposedly, from PFAS. So finally, DuPont and Kimora's claim to not be using PFAS anymore, but Representative Harley Ruda who is of California, who chairs the Environment Subcommittee of the House Committee on Oversight and Reform, sent a letter to DuPont and Kimors asking why they're still discharging a highly toxic substance they claim not to have used in years. So the the Environmental Working Group reported on this, and they actually claim that they're not using them, but high levels are being detected in the waters nearby, nearby the plants and stuff. So either way, Either DuPont and Kimors are lying, or there is just so much residual PFAS in the water from the past, and that's just terrifying. Like, there, it's so high, apparently. So I wanted to touch on two other victims that I saw while I was researching. So Bonnie Smalley grew up in New Jersey with her family near a DuPont site where her father worked. And she said that they all have some sort of health issue in her family, and she thinks that they are all related to PFAS. She has dental problems, and everyone in her family was born with a different disease. She said that she's been seeing specialists since she was born. Robin Andrews of Pedricktown, New Jersey, has autoimmune disease and thyroid condition, suffering severe dental problems, hair loss, and other symptoms. Basically, she lived next to a DuPont manufacturing factory in South Jersey near the Delaware River, and her grandfather and father both worked at that plant, known as the Chambers Works, which covers 1,400 acres of riverbank in the shadow of the bridge to Delaware. So, like, they just keep setting up shop next to all these rivers and dumping into it. It's so sad. Like, ugh. I bet those rivers are really scary looking. People who live in these areas near these plants are installing their own water filtration systems in their homes because their like own well water and stuff was coming up with PFOA in it. So I do have some updates for you. Good stuff, kind of. <laughs> so according to the EPA, and this is recent, the updated advisory levels, which are based on new science and consider lifetime exposure, indicate that some negative health effects may occur with concentrations of PFOA or PFOS in water that are near zero and below EPA's ability to detect at this time. So they're basically saying, like, even if there's, like, the smallest, like, they, they can't even detect this amount. The smallest amount of PFOA or PFOS in water you will have negative health effects. And it just makes me think of, like, all the people. Like, I feel like everyone has some sort of crazy health problem nowadays. And I think I was talking in the episode about barber surgeons, about how, like, I see so many men that have, like, receding hairlines and stuff now. And, like, one of the side effects of being exposed to PFAS chemicals is patchiness, losing hair. And, like, I'm in North Carolina where we have high concentrations of this shit in our water, apparently. And there's, like, billboards everywhere about, like, getting your hair back. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, these poor people are probably, like, literally losing hair because they have PFOA in their blood. But I'm also not a scientist. But, like, I mean, if it's everywhere, we're born with this shit in us. On December 19th, 2019... EPA issued interim recommendations for addressing groundwater contaminated with PFOA and PFOS. So this provides a cleanup guidance for federal cleanup programs that will be helpful to states and tribes. 
Most uses of PFOA and PFOS were voluntarily phased out by U.S. manufacturers, although there are a limited number of ongoing uses, and these chemicals remain in the environment due to their lack of degradation. So that's from the EPA. I don't know why they needed to be like, it's voluntarily phased out. Like, fuck you guys. No, it wasn't. We had to fight DuPont for so long. Like, this wasn't voluntary. They needed to be, like, it should have been involuntary. You should have fucking put this shit, like, in the ground a long time ago. Actually, don't put it in the ground. But you know what I mean? Like, these companies should not be existing anymore. It makes me so mad. <laughs> but yeah, so they're basically saying that. Like, like I mentioned, the firefighting foam still has it in there. The MREs still have it. There's, like, some random things that still have PFOA in it. But apparently, DuPont and... 3M are no longer making it because they just feel so bad for making it. So I don't know who's making it or like where, I don't know. It's all very gray. EPA has initiated the regulatory development process for listing PFOA and PFOS as hazardous substances, finally, under the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act. As of June 15th, 2022. So I was like researching this a couple days ago and I was like, oh my God, this is like brand new information. As of June 15th, 2022, the EPA has officially put into place a strategic plan to filter out the PFAS in drinking water nationwide. So that's a big hell yeah. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency released four drinking water health advisories for PFAS in the latest action under President Biden's action plan to deliver clean water and Administrator Reagan's PFAS strategic roadmap. The EPA proposed plans for the National Primary Drinking Water Regulation for PFOA and PFOS, which will release in the fall of 2022. So finally, PFOA, PFOS, the PFAS chemical group is going to be regulated and hopefully not in our water anymore. And they're going to put that plan out in the fall of this year. So this strategy includes steps by the Food and Drug Administration to increase testing for PFAS in food and packaging by the U.S. Department of Agriculture to help dairy farmers address contamination of livestock and by the Department of Defense to clean up contaminated military installations and the elimination of unnecessary PFAS. There's also a grant that can be applied for. It's a $1 billion grant um, funded through President Biden's bipartisan infrastructure law to help communities that are on the front lines of PFAS contamination um, with the cleanup. And also they're looking to help communities facing disproportionate impacts. So they're also going to be working with tribes, um, the, it says with tribes and Alaskan native villages regarding the tribal set aside for this grant program. So your city, town, whatever, can your state, I think, I'm not sure what it is. Is it state? I guess just community can apply for these grants. Um, but I just want to say, the FDA said no more jewels on Friday. And yes, we have had like popcorn lungs and like 19-year-olds having strokes and whatever. But like typically, oh my God, I was watching this TikTok of this girl talking about her friend who, who was 19 and had a stroke. And he would like, he was very big into vaping and he would vape like, he had a Red Bull flavored vape juice, like all these crazy flavors of vape juice, which are not Juul brand. I think it's kind of stupid to outlaw just Juul and like not all these like crazy weird flavors and stuff. But like, we've known about this shit for so long. We've known the effects of PFAS chemicals for so long and we're just now getting this shit regulated and it's not even officially regulated. This is just them being like, we're going to regulate it. 
It's just, it's like, can we get our priorities straight, please? And thank you. Also, I'm going to post um, in the notes steps that you can take to reduce your PFAS intake. So like if you have well water or like if you, even if you get bottled water or if you live near a river, it has all these instructions of like different ways that you can like monitor your water and your PFAS intake. And that's, I'll just read the link for you. It's HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash www.epa.gov forward slash PFAS forward slash meaningful dash and dash achievable dash steps dash you dash can dash take dash reduce dash your dash risk. And I'm going to put that in the notes. There is so much information out there about this. I also just realized while researching this too that my mom lived an hour and a half, like grew up like an hour and a half away from the Parkersburg plant. She was born in 64, I think. So she's like born into this mess. My mom died of cancer when I was five. And like also she smoked a lot of cigarettes and also she was crazy and would tan out in the sun like all day, every day. Um, So there were probably a lot of factors at play, but she definitely died of cancer. And I'm her daughter, so I'm very curious if I have, like, higher levels of PFOA or whatever in my system just because of, like, her proximity of it to it. But, yeah, like, I always knew that there was a dump in West Virginia, but I didn't realize, like, what, you know, what the dump was or, like, how far it went. And I've been talking to my friends about this as I've been researching because I've just been so mind-blown, and it seems like a lot of people, like, my age aren't really aware of this because, like, it kind of came to light, like, when we were, you know, toddlers and stuff. I mean, it's still obviously ongoing. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just fucking pissed off. I guess this wasn't the best episode to do for the 25th episode of Professional Skepticism, but it is a big episode that deserves to be talked about, and I did so much research for this, and I just wanted to get it out there. I think we should all be a little pissed off about this. We should all care more about these kinds of things. We have a lot of things to be pissed off about right now. I am definitely pro-choice. But I'm letting you guys know that's how I feel. And so I will be probably posting some more information about that on the Instagram with some resources and some voting resources as well. But yeah, I don't know, guys. It's been a rough week news-wise. I just want you all to know how much I love you. I love you all so much. If you ever need anything, like, please do not hesitate to reach out to me. If you ever have a topic that you feel like needs to be addressed, let's talk about it. You know, I'm not like a I'm not a journalist. I'm not trained in this kind of stuff, but like I do enjoy doing the research and I do have a platform where I can get the word out. So hit your girl up. But I think I'm going to wrap it up. Y'all know what to do. Leave a five-star rating, share with your friends and family, get the word out. Let me know if you want some stickers. Website on the way, but I had a little bit of a technical setback and it won't be ready for like a little bit. Um, But I wanted to get that ready for you guys to buy the stickers on. But for now, you can just buy them directly from me and I can mail them to you. And with that, you can follow me at Profskep Podcast. That's at P-R-O-F-S-K-E-P Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. I'm so sorry. I'm so inactive on the Twitter. I need to get better at that. And you can email me at professionalskepticismpodcast at gmail.com. I love you guys so much. Stay sus skeptics. I'll see you next week. Mwah.